Hey everyone, welcome back to the third episode of another progressive podcast. I'm your host, Max Deutsch. If you're returning, welcome back. This is your first time listening. Welcome to the show. Thanks for checking it out. This is a pretty cool episode because I got to have my first guest. I spoke this week with Eri Noguchi, who is the Chief Operating Officer at the Association to Benefit Children, as well as an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Social Work and an adjunct at the Roosevelt House of Public Policy at Hunter College. We spoke about poverty and intergenerational poverty and some of the relating issues that encapsulate both. Take a listen. Hope you enjoy. Learn a couple things. Here we go. Hi, Ari. Thank you for joining us on the show. Hi, Max. It's my pleasure. Yes, it's exciting. You're the first guest for another progressive podcast. So I guess we can start uh, if you want to sort of introduce yourself, talk about what you do, what your work is around. Sure. So um, by day, I am a social worker. I work for a children's organization, uh, primarily in East Harlem and the South Bronx, uh, called the Association to Benefit Children. And then uh, I also um, teach part-time as an adjunct professor, adjunct assistant professor at both Hunter and Columbia. And Max, that's how I met you this past semester. Yes, my professor this past semester. Uh, cool. So, I mean, what is some of your work that you do as a social worker? Kind of what is, what is that like uh, at your organization? Sure. So, um, I work at an organization where we serve primarily, uh, children and families from very disadvantaged backgrounds. So families who fall below the poverty line, um, in, uh, East Harlem, Harlem, the South Bronx, um, and we um, provide no-cost uh, programming, so uh, early childhood education, preschool, you know, kind of your run-of-the-mill nursery schools, but really high quality um, and at no cost to the families themselves. Uh, we run an after-school program, summer camp, uh, small housing program, um, and then a, a, a lot of mental health services. Um, so the kind of um, mental health treatment that, you know, more well-to-do families would would pay for um we actually provide those for at no cost to the the communities that we're in it's interesting i feel like i mean this summer kind of the discussion of like mental health services being available has kind of been at the forefront of the whole policing discussion i mean like have you been involved in like in that in that sort of field of having to deal with police first you trying to do your thing so because we're focusing much more on children, it's a little bit more indirect, but absolutely. I mean, all of the racial unrest, um, the vast majority of children that we serve, that we teach, that we you know, are providing services for um, are uh, children of color, Black, Latino, Latina children, Latinx children. Um, and, and so they are affected directly both you know they see what's going on around them they are themselves victims of um, exposed to microaggressions across the board um, and you know and 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 they see how their relatives their neighbors their brothers their sisters their uncles cousins are are, are treated um, you know not just by the police but across the board right so um and they internalize a lot of that so we are definitely on the front lines really providing um a, a lot of we do a lot of trauma work you know um trying to be very present with these kids um and and we try to help uh parents as well because parents are also struggling to to find ways to talk to their kids without scaring them but also not hiding things so um we're providing a lot of support to the parents as well yeah so i feel like this is a good way to kind of segue into this discussion because I mean, just from what you're talking about i mean that when you grow up in poverty like it's there is trauma there's you have experiences especially if you're uh, a minority person of color growing up in poverty the experience it's extremely hard for the parents and for kids and so i think something that's very often not understood uh, across the board. I mean, me, I only started to realize it once I took your class, uh, sort of the extent of how this plays out. And so sort of one of the things that I'm doing on the show is sort of looking at kind of the conservative talking points, conservative commentators uh, and talk and going in depth because it's, I, I like to call their arguments talking points because I think very often there's actually not, not, not much thought behind it. 
And so kind of one of the, the I think anyone listening will have heard some version of the uh, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you want to get out of poverty, uh, you've got to, I mean, I have so Ben Shapiro, who I don't know if you know who Ben Shapiro is, he's kind of the, called the cool kids philosopher, uh, sort of the, the ma most mainstream conservative commentator. And so he, in a video, uh, spoke about, in m multiple videos and speeches, talks about how the kind of the three things you do to get out, out of poverty is graduate high school, get a job, and get married before having kids, and that's it. That's just sort of the easy solution. So just right off the bat, I mean, what are your thoughts when hearing that uh, from your experience, actually seeing what it's like for someone growing up in poverty? Uh, why do, does, does, is that an oversimplification? Um, so right off the bat, yes. Um, and, you know, I mean, I would start by saying that, you know, I would imagine that even Ben Shapiro himself doesn't mean to say that all you have to do is you know, graduate from high school, get a full-time job and get married before you have children because he must know that there are people who've graduated from high school, have a full-time job and got married before they had kids who are poor, right? So, I mean, you know, he must know that the working full-time on a minimum wage uh, in the United States lands you below the poverty line. He actually, um, he actually doesn't surprisingly. <laughs> He has, I've, I'm planning on doing an episode on, on the minimum wage and looking at his views on the minimum wage because he doesn't believe in the minimum wage. So I think it's kind of part of one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show also is just to sort of look at like how flawed some of these mentalities are and how much is missing. Uh, but yeah, sorry to cut you off. Got it. No, so so that's helpful. Um, and, and clearly you've um, researched uh, you know kind of what his what he says much more than I do thank you for by the way um, introducing me to uh, his work because it, it was very eye-opening um, so absolutely there are many 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 people many families especially uh, in New York City and across the country who meet all three of those criteria and nevertheless are poor um, so right off the bat, that statement is very easy to debunk. Um, but, you know, without getting into kind of the, you know, if, if we were to, to, to assume that that statement isn't meant literally, but is really pointing to a correlation, um, then I think that there is some, some evidence, right? There, it is actually... Um, true, the data does does support the um, idea that there's a correlation between formal schooling and income levels. So the more years of formal schooling you have, the higher your income, all else being equal, right? So those are correlated. Um, you know, on average, people who are married, um, you know, have, are, are better off. Again, there are, it's not a deterministic, um, you know, kind of one-to-one -one correlation, but there is somewhat of a correlation. You, you are less likely to be poor if you're married than if you're not. Um, and, and certainly single parenthood uh, is very highly correlated with being poor. And finally, having a full-time job is of course correlated with having more income, right? I mean, the more hours you work, the more money you get. So all else being equal again, um, you know that that does tend to be to be true. Um, having said that, though, um, you know there are there are you know there are three things that come to my mind. Right, one is that there are a ton of different reasons why people um, you know don't have a high school degree or don't have a, a full time job um, or even a well paying part time job. Um, and, and there are many who, and, and there are lots of reasons why uh, people, um, you know, don't get married, right? Um, and so I think understanding some of the cumulative you know, social factors and, and, um, and societal factors that go into the, you know, people traveling those different um, pathways is an important thing to understand and certainly poverty um, being poor to start out with um, makes us you know makes somebody much less able compared to those who start out in a different 
you know, position in life, you know, better able to take advantage of the opportunities that they come across. So, I mean, I think that there's, there's the history piece that is um, the first set of, of considerations. The second is that there are many, many, many more people who meet all three of those criteria who are poor today than there were 50 years ago, right? That the, that the, the income distribution um, across the nation has fundamentally changed um, over the past several decades. You know, so to me, I kind of think of it, you know, I hope this doesn't make it too um, simplistic, but to me, it is a little bit simplistic, simple, right? That, that I, I think of it at like musical chairs, right? If there are a hundred chairs and a hundred people and you play the game over and over again, everyone's going to end up in, with a chair. If you take 10 of those chairs away, so you have 90 people playing, a you know, sorry, if you have 100 people playing musical chairs with 90 chairs, then you know what, you're going to start seeing some patterns um, between the people who get the chairs round after round and the, and the people who don't. And if you take 50 of the chairs away, so now you have 100 people competing for 50 chairs, you know what, the faster people are going to get the chairs more often than that, not the stronger people are going to get the chairs more often than not the more healthy people who don't get out of breath who don't get tired are going to, you know, get the chairs more often than not. And so then, you know, that kind of gives you a sense of the way that I see you know, poverty and income distribution and these other factors that you, um, that, that you highlight um, are some of the things that correlate with poverty. Like, it doesn't have to be that, you know, if you don't have a full-time job, you're going to starve. It doesn't have to be that if you don't get married um, before having children, you're going to starve, right? Those are, those are decisions that we made in the same way that we might decide to take 40 chairs out of the musical chairs game. Um, so, I mean, that I think is, is, is part of the way that I think about poverty. Poverty isn't about not being married. Poverty is about there not being, you know, a fair distribution of income across the different, um, levels of of society yeah yeah that makes a lot of sense i think i re i do like that musical chairs an uh, analogy so kind of one thing that i want to ask on that and you mentioned how you know 50 years ago versus today uh you know we've gotten rid of chairs so to speak sort of what what was it like say 50 60 years ago uh in terms of being able to whatever i mean where what what were there 100 chairs 50 years ago how did, you know, when did the chairs start to be taken away and sort of what are some examples of different kinds of chairs, uh, if, that make, if that makes sense, sort of what are the different things that you would consider a chair being taken away? Sure, no, that's a great question. So, um, you know, right off the bat, when you look at kind of the macro picture of income um, across the different uh, income levels in society, right? So when we think about income distribution, we think of like the, you know, the bottom 20%, the next 20%, the middle 20%, and then like the, the richest 20%, right? So you, if you were to, to um, divide the entire U.S. population into five groups, group rank rank ordered by their income level you can think of them as five you know five levels of income and when you look at the incomes of the two poor you know the two bottom 20 percent um between 1940 and 1970 their incomes actually increased steadily over the the 30 years between 1940 and 1970 um, so, uh, and in fact, the incomes of the poorest 5% doubled, right? So the share of income, their income, um, and, uh, and, and, and the, the um, higher groups, their incomes grew as well. In fact, the incomes of the top 20% grew more than the incomes of the lower groups, but everyone increased their income. When you look at the period from the 1980s to now, the income of the top 1% increased by 226%. So basically tripled, it tripled. 
Meanwhile, if you look at the bottom 60%, their incomes grew still, but they only grew by half. They grew by about 47%, right? So if you were to look at a picture, and I know we're on, on radios or sound, so I can't actually show you a picture, but if you think of like, you know, um, uh, like a, a, a rising wave, right? And you have two curves. One goes up a little bit over the 60 years that I just talked about. And the other is literally shooting up into the heavens. Um, so, you know, there are some really um, systematic and structural uh, forces that are taking place during that 60 year period so that as the country gets richer, the share of that that additional wealth is being um, is being funneled to the highest uh, uh, you know the highest income levels, um, and it's not being shared across all of the various levels, right? So that so it's it that's kind of of you know the analogy with the musical chairs, like where are the extra chairs, um, where are the chairs being taken away from. And then where the any you know the chairs that are left over, where are they being um, uh, funneled uh, in a sense? Right. I mean that's kind of how I think of it. Yeah. So I mean, so do you know? Uh, I, mean, I don't know if this is sort of like the policy area of things is your area of expertise, but sort of like what happened in the '70s or the '70s, '80s, and sort of what's continued to happen that hasn't sort of changed. Like, are there specific policies or? political trends that cause this to happen? Um, so yes, uh, that would be probably like, uh, you know, if you've got, a t you know, 50 policy and, you know, political scientists and economists in a room, they would all have their specific thing right. that they're going to point to. So I won't be able to do it justice, but, you know, I think that there were significant changes to tax policy that, um, that that uh, transformed our our tax system from one that was much more progressive to one that um, was not as much so, right? So, um, you know, one of the things that uh, I often read about is is at the at the height of the '70s is when our tax policy was the most progressive, and so anytime any kind of tax uh, policy is compared, it's compared to that. Um, conservatives will argue that it was also the time when, um, you know, we were putting the, the greatest um, uh, restrictions on the economy, on growth, right? I mean, so there, there are arguments for why we moved away from such a progressive tax uh, policy, but that's one of the things that changed. Um, I think that another uh, big change uh, that happened over time is globalization and connected with that, um, you know, the, the rise of the mega corporations um, that concentrated wealth in a much more um, systemic way. Um, and because of globalization, there were a number of other factors, you know, deindustrialization is something that um, gets talked about a lot. Um, the the um, the new way of um, structuring uh, production and manufacturing uh, in in kind of just in time uh, systems, so that the you know so that um, a lot of these larger organizations aren't creating a lot of inventory, um, which then means that they're the the amount that they have to spend on labor is far less, right? The the um, the risk of uh, the business cycles was transferred from corporations to individual workers, you know, and what that basically means for you and me is that, you know, in the olden days, if we got a job, we had a job year round all the time, we had to, you know, show up to work, we got a regular paycheck, you know, we didn't have a whole lot of ups and downs in our income, we got paid every day, right? Now there are many, many more employment uh, arrangements where individual workers will only be employed when there's actually demand for whatever's being produced. And, you know, when that, when that demand is less then rather than keep individuals on payroll, they're, they're uh, let go, right? And so the, 
kind of ebbs and flows of business cycles are shouldered by individual workers as opposed to corporations. It creates a much higher profit margin for the corporations, but it does then mean that the share of you know, whatever profits or value added that the workers get to keep is much more uh, limited. Yeah, so I want to I mean, that seems sort of seems to connect to the, oh, if you just get a job, then you're set, but not necessarily then all jobs, even if you get a job, you're necessarily having a full-time job that pays you your wages full-time because you might be, you're, you know, you're a seasonal worker. And so you're just, you know, you get a job, but it only lasts for a couple months. So even just there, uh, it seems that, it, you know, it's simplified to say, just get a job. Uh, I mean, if you think about, for instance, the gig economy, right? I mean, so there's so much emphasis on individual um, uh, like uh, get up and go um, attitude, right? That it's it's all about entrepreneurialism and and motivation, and you know, there's so much of an emphasis on that that we that we forget that you know part of why we need workers to be so much more um, kind of energetic and 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 staying on top of their game because there's so much more at stake. I mean, you know, the there. Uh, if you think of the gig economy, you know, you, you don't know on a week-to-week basis how many hours you'll be able to work, how much income you're going to have. So you're constantly having to, you know, line up the next gig while you're um, actually fulfilling your current gig. Um, and same with the service sector. Um, you know, if you think of like a barista who's, who's putting in so many hours, um, when demand is high, um, but you know, the minute the the um, season changes, uh, you know, their their hours are cut. It's not that they're not working. It's not that they're willing to work. I mean, they're available, but um, they're not given the hours that they need to sustain themselves. Um, and you know, I mean, if not to bring COVID nineteen into the mix, but if you look at how many people became unemployed, number one, and then even the people who lost work and, and they're not even officially unemployed because they were part of an informal economy. Um, so they don't, you know, they can't actually apply for unemployment. You know, putting those two together, you have, you know, a, a, a real recipe for the kind of financial insecurity that, um, you know, may not necessarily bring them below the poverty line, but surely feels um, in many respects uh, similar to, to what it, it feels like to live in poverty, right? Not, not being able to plan, not being sure whether you're gonna be able to pay rent or, you know, every once in a while you may need to eat less or not, you know, not buy as many groceries in order to pay your bills. I mean, those kinds of decisions feel to me um you know like like very close to poverty yeah so i think that's also something that very often people talk about you know those who live below the poverty line like they're the ones who are in trouble but even those who live around like around the poverty line is still like i mean what what is the and this kind of gets to sort of how we view who's in poverty and who's not in poverty um so do you know offhand like kind of what the 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 poverty threshold is the official poverty threshold um, I don't have them off the top of my head, but they're a, it's about $12,000 for a single person. And it's about $24,000, um, I think, for a family of three. Um, it might so, be a little bit more for a family of four. Yeah, so uh, even so does that, thinking like if you have a family of three and you're making, you know, $27,000, you're not in poverty, but it's still not, you know, you can't afford a lot of things with that. Um, and, and especially these days, right? So it used to be that, you know, if you go back to like the 50s and the 60s, you know, generally what people were paying for housing was a much smaller percentage of their total income. These days, I mean, especially for people who are poor and near poor, many of them are, are paying up to half of their income on rent, right? So then you know, just what you just said. So if they're, if they're bringing home like 
well, if they're making 27,000, they're not necessarily bringing home 20, 27,000. If you're spending about half of that on rent, then you're actually talking about living on say 12,000, $13,000 a year, um, supporting a family of three. Um, that's pretty tight. Yeah, especially then, I mean, there's no room for savings at all, really, in that. So I kind of uh, bring on to sort of how we view who's in poverty. I kind of want to talk about uh, the measures of poverty and how sort of historically poverty has been measured officially. And I know there are some other ways we measure poverty and that we can learn some things. from. So I'm wondering if you could sort of discuss the, the official poverty measure and then the alternatives. <laughs> Which for those sure. listening, for those listening, we spent many weeks doing this in Aries class. Hopefully, I can make it a little bit less boring than it was in class. Um, so yeah, so the official poverty um, line was created by putting together a basket of um, food that people would need. Um, so I think it's like twelve hundred calories or something like that. Um, and then, and then pricing how much a food basket of about 1200 uh, calories would cost back in the 50s when it was first created, and then multiplying that by three, I believe. Um, and that was, you know, considered basically how much somebody would need in order to subsist, right? So the idea of poverty is what's the minimum amount that you need in order to subsist and then anybody below that would be considered poor. Um, so, you know, back say 50, 60, 70 years ago, that might have worked, but these days, you know, the, the, the expenses that we um, shoulder in order to even participate minimally in society is much greater, right? So, I mean, I already mentioned housing. The cost of housing as a percentage of income has, has you know, grown exponentially. So people need a lot more money, um, especially depending on where they live. You know, and you and I live in New York City. We are no strangers to, you know, skyrocketing, crazy rents, right? Um, and it may be that in other areas, uh, rents are not as outrageous, but certainly here, rent is the first thing we worry about. Um, and so that's, that has um, uh, increased significantly. Um, and then the other things that have increased, utilities. So, you know, we, we think, I don't know about you, but, you know, I feel like it, People need to have water, you know, indoor plumbing, you know, water, uh, tap water, and, you know, um, and uh, electricity, right? So that then becomes a part of the, the basket of, of things that we need in order not to be poor. Um, and that wasn't originally um, included in the basket, but it makes sense to include it these days. Yeah, I think especially internet. Uh, yes. That def. I mean, it's been a huge thing during the COVID crisis. Uh, people living in rural areas not having internet, or even in the cities not having internet. Uh, sure. To, and this was so pretty much we're saying is the the poverty. I mean, internet is huge, and the way the government is measuring poverty is from a time when internet didn't exist, which exactly. just seems kind of crazy to think about. Exactly. I mean, you look at like the the um, poor kids going to public schools during this pandemic, right? They could not participate in remote learning, period. I mean, like, how can you, you know, connect to a Google Meets or a Zoom call uh, if you just don't have access to the internet? Um, and, you know, even, even homework assignments, you know, school projects were being posted online. Like, how else were teachers going to get that, get those projects to the, to the students? So the, the, income differential, right? And exactly what you say, the access to, to internet, to Wi-Fi, created a stark digital divide between the haves and the have-nots that had major consequences with respect to a fundamental right, the fundamental right of public education. You know, that the, these kids who didn't have uh, either a device or internet access simply could not get educated 
um, even though we have a robust public education system. So you're absolutely right. And internet doesn't figure, even in the supplemental poverty measure, right. that is the, the new, um, the newer uh, poverty measure, that the new and improved poverty measure, inter internet access isn't even included there. That's great. I didn't know, I didn't realize that, but since you brought it up, you want to you sort of I mean, so then what is in the supplemental poverty measure? <laughs> how did it come about? Sort of what what do we learn from it? Sure. So I mean, I I think how it how it came about is basically the story we just told, right? So, it you know there's a. a, a, a an acknowledgement that the old uh, official poverty measure just doesn't capture the 21st century reality anymore. It's, you know, it's not just about food, period, right? So the, the new, what, what we call the supplemental poverty measure, the SPM, it takes into consideration not only food, but also the cost of housing, the cost of clothing, um, the cost of utilities, and again, we're talking about basic utilities, so water, electricity, gas. Um, and then uh, it also accounts for costs like um, medical expenses, which are far greater today than they were um, 50 years ago. Um, so it, you know, it, it, it takes all of those um, into consideration. Um, and it takes into consideration um, uh, regional differences, right? So, you know, again, um, trying to eke out a living in New York City is going to cost more than trying to eke out a, a living in, in other areas where especially housing costs aren't as great. And so, you know, there's a, a, an acknowledgement and an adjustment for what that that threshold for poverty should be given what region you, uh, you live in, the individual lives in. So that's kind of how we've created a little bit more of a nuanced um, measure to try to get at what poverty looks like, you know, again, in New York City versus in, you know, say uh, a more rural area. Um, yeah, so I guess, I mean, so what are some of the, like sort of broader differences uh, in terms of like what we like you know what 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 does the official poverty measure say about uh, poverty versus the supplemental poverty measure say about the state of poverty? Um, so it depends, um, and you know that's where it does get a little bit um, a little bit uh, um, uh, nuanced. Um, so in one of the, the major findings when you compare using the official poverty measure with the supplemental poverty measure, and this I think is pretty powerful, um, when you look at poverty rates, again, from the 1960s to today, um, the supplemental poverty measure actually makes, makes it uh, uh, much clearer that poverty has gone down um, that we've actually made a, a, a dent in poverty rates um, in those areas where the anti-poverty programs have been strong. So for instance, um, in 1967, um, the, the poverty rate, when you use the SPM, the poverty rate was 25%. Um, and if you look at it uh, today, it's 13%. Um, so it does look like economic security programs have cut poverty rates um, nearly by half. Um, when you don't use the supplemental poverty measure, then the impact is much more blunted. And so, you know, when you hear policy folks say that anti-poverty measures have been utterly unsuccessful, they're usually talking about um, you know, they're usually pointing to statistics that have been uh, based on the official measure. Yeah, I actually just saw that last week and I was sort of doing research. So PragerU, which is a very popular uh, sort of conservative media group and makes lots of videos kind of debunking the left, as they say. And so they had exact thing where they saying, oh, welfare benefits don't work. And they provided the official poverty measure and showed it flatlining and said, you know, we've tried it. We have to stop trying it. It doesn't work. But if you actually look at when you take that in, because if I recall correctly, it also, it kind of, it takes some of those benefits into consideration as income, right? 
Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. And the official poverty measure doesn't. Yeah. So I think, yeah, I think that people should know more about because again, like if I did not know about the supplementary poverty measure and I would see that video and I think like many people who are watching these videos and hearing these arguments, they hear that, they see it's the official government chart and I think, okay, I guess that means uh, that benefits and government programs don't work and sort of that's the conclusion. Um, and I think, yeah, it's sort of, again, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this show is to go into how it's not like, you know, what, what you see in a statistic is not always the full picture. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and, and, you know, the, the other thing that I think often gets lost is, you know, that when you look at a lot of these anti-poverty measures, they are putting cash into the hands of poor people, right? So, you know, they're putting food stamps into the hands of people so that they can get enough food. They're putting rent subsidies into the hands of poor families so that they can actually, you know, meet their rent requirements. Um, And so number one, of course, that boosts their income. Number two, you know, kind of connecting back to where we started, you know, what are some of the reasons why uh, kids don't finish school? Well, you know, lo and behold, if you become homeless while you're in school, it's really hard to stay in school because you can't actually make it to school if you don't have a place to lie, you know, sleep at night, right? Um, And certainly there are challenges to doing well in school, to staying in school, if you're hungry, if you're not eating. Um, So, you know, I think that there are both the immediate um, consequences of putting cash in the the hands of, of people who need it, and then there are the indirect consequences that then lead to the kinds of things that we started out talking with. And you know, rather than blaming that kid who, you know, can't pay attention in school because he hasn't had breakfast that morning and maybe not even dinner the night before, we can begin to kind of figure out how to mitigate the, the causes that, that um, you know, result in that kid not, not being able to pay attention. Yeah, so that kind of perfectly segues into what I wanted to talk about next. And that's sort of, looking at what are some of the causes and the correlates of poverty and sort of me, you know, you said housing and kind of food. Cause I think sort of what I'm trying to get at is that, I mean, when, if you, if you live in poverty, sort of every aspect of your life is affected and sort of creates a cycle and sort of, sort of in, I don't know if this is, it's a very broad question. So, I mean, I guess what, what are some of the sort of, sort of the main ways that, that these are the main causes of course of poverty that, that create a cycle and that make it harder and harder to get out of in your opinion? Yeah, that is, that's a huge question. I'm not sure where to start with it. You know, I guess I would start with financial instability, right? Um, You know, and I think that, um, you know, how I think about it is um, poverty is about not having enough money in order to meet the, you know, kind of the the daily, requirements, obligations, and opportunities that come our way. So, you know, for instance, um, you know, tuition is something, right? So if you have, if you're a family and you have a child uh, who you're hoping to send to college, you know, if you're literally only meeting your basic expenses, then you're not going to be able to have the disposable income to send, you know, your kid even to a public uh, university. And there are some wonderful, excellent public universities, as uh, you well know. But, but even those cost money, right? So if you have zero disposable income, then you're not able to send your kid to college. Well, as we know, there is a strong correlation between formal schooling and income. So if you're starting out unable to actually, you know, go to college, then you're already kind of behind the eight ball with respect to, you know, your as a child and future adult, um, you know, your ability to compete 
um, in, in the labor market for better paying jobs. So that's one. Um, we talked about food. I mean, food insecurity is huge, right? So, you know, if you're not, if you're not getting enough food on a regular basis, if you're, if you're regularly skimping, if you're regularly skipping meals, that's going to have consequences with respect to health. That's going to have consequences with respect to your ability to be present and motivated and energetic and, you know, and, and all of those things that both schooling and employment requires. Um, so, so that will spiral into other negative consequences as well. Certainly ill health. So all of these things are highly correlated to poor health and poor health is very highly correlated to, again, you know, the, uh, inability to maintain steady employment, inability to maintain kind of, you know, regular attendance in school and other kind of vocational programs. Um, you know, things like that. So financial insecurity vis-a-vis health, vis-a-vis food, vis-a-vis the ability to maintain some sort of forward-moving um, life trajectory is huge. Um, and then I think financial instability, and these are the things that like we don't usually think about when we're having these grand policy discussions, right? But like, what do you do when your toilet overflows and you have no money on the side? What do you do when, you know, your only way to get to work is with your car and your car is 20 years old and it needs a repair and the engine doesn't start? Like you have no, no disposable, you have nothing on the side. So there's nothing, you know, so now a car that needs repair leads to not being able to get to work you know, so job absences, which, you know, if it happens too often, is probably going to result in you losing that job, right? What do you do when, you're, when your roof is leaking? What do you do when your, your kid, you know, steps on a nail and you have to take them to the hospital and you don't have insurance? Or you do, but you, you don't have enough money to, to cover the co-pays or the specific treatment that your kid needs isn't covered by your, you know, so all of the the kind of life's unexpected happenings that affect all of us um, become huge barriers when we have nothing that we that we can put aside because we're living you know we're living hand to mouth so that's that's financial instability feels to me like kind of the the story of poverty even for folks who are not officially poor right yeah i mean so i think the, the picture you paint is something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, like earlier this summer, I read the book Evicted. I don't remember who by, but where he very often tells the story of people who, do you pay your rent? I mean, it was like a family of six living in a one bedroom apartment. Do you, the toilet was clogged. Do they pay the rent or do they fix their toilet? And so they were just using their sink. And then, but what happens when the toilet and then the sink overflows because you're using the sink as a toilet and sort of like, again, yeah, there's so many ways in which all these little things all interact with each other. And I feel, again, think, I'm thinking about if you're living in a situation where you're food insecure and your toilet is clogged and you're, you know, if you have, I mean, because I, I do, I believe from correct, you know, if just, if you live in poverty, the chances are high that you're living in overcrowded housing, how that affects your health and then your schooling and thinking about, I mean, we spoke about, or you spoke about if you don't have the money to go to college, but also if you don't have the food to go, if, if you're, you know, go, growing up, if you can't focus in school because of health problems and lack of food, then your just chances of you even making it to college are just lower, I would assume, because you're not paying attention to school, you're not, you know, doing as well as you could. And um, so it feels like, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of these ways in which all these little things all connected in, impact each other. And that's very often overlooked as to sort of how connected it all is. And then also health, I mean, just the cost of healthcare, right? I mean, it's skyrocketed, you've mentioned six, since the 60s, 70s. Yep, exactly. And there are also, you know, and, and, and the, the details on the ground, you know, tell you a, the story of poverty in a way that statistics can't, right? So, you know, like, again, as I mentioned, I work in a, a children and families organization in a you know, very, very poor community, you know, so the kinds of, of um, 
challenges that the families we work with, you know, that they face are, are very, um, you know, they're, 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 they're wrought with, um, with uh, pain and, and sometimes shame, right? So like, you know, just as an example, like we, there's a, a family um, and there's a, a fifth grade girl and she has a hole in her shoe and her parents can't afford to buy her a new pair of shoes but the other kids in school make fun of her for her the hole in her shoes so she doesn't want to go to school so then that turns into school refusal and it gets you know it it, it becomes a much bigger thing when really at the end of the day if she could just have a new pair of shoes so she doesn't have a hole in her shoe she would go to school right um and, you know, but, but the, you know, poverty takes away from us the ability to kind of problem solve in the traditional ways that we're able to problem solve. Um, you know, not, not being able to buy, uh, you know, the school, a school bag for, for a kid means that they have to like bring all of their stuff, you know, in their hands. So then those kids are going to lose things more, right? But then there's the stigma of, oh, that kid's always losing their, you know, they, they need a new textbook all the time. Then they become that kid um, when, you know, we could have avoided that situation if we just, you know, if that kid could just have a school bag. Um, and, you know, those are things that, again, you know, charities and, and social service organizations often do. They fill those gaps. But, you know, not every family gets, finds uh, kind of a, a, an agency that can help in that way, right? And, and, and why should they? Like, why, why should, why should it be that, you know, only the families who are lucky enough to connect to an organization that will, you know, provide them with those charities are able to raise kids who can actually stay steadily in school. Um, and, you know, so that the examples of that are, are constant, like just the, the inability to bounce back from both large and small, you know, kind of setbacks because of a lack of money um, becomes, you know, becomes part of a, a, a larger story of failure when, um, when it doesn't have to. Um, and the families then begin to, to feel themselves like they're failures when really, you know, the, the original trigger was um, something that could have been um, fixed in a, in a different way. Yeah, and I, and then I think then the most important part, I think, again, from my experience, just from talking to people once I've, you know, I took your class that the way this becomes intergenerational and that it kind of passes on from, you know, if, if for the past 30 years, this has been your family situation, you can't just get out of it because, I mean, there's been no savings. There's been, you're growing up in, a, in, in lower income poor communities that just don't have the resources to be able to get out of it. And like, and I'm, so I know just, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine in the beginning of the summer in which I sort of tried to lay out intergenerational poverty. And once I sort of listed some of these things the next day, he came to me and said, I guess I hadn't really thought about it that way. Uh, I, you know, I was too rash and said, you know, thinking that I didn't realize the impact that that could have on, on, you know, on getting out of poverty. I feel like a lot of people just don't really see how that cycle plays out, you know, in generation over generation. Um, I absolutely, um, but so you're absolutely right. Um, but I wouldn't want to then conclude that there's no way to fix it right. because I do think that there are very, um, you know, practical ways to actually turn, you know, a, a life trajectory around. Um, it does take commit commitment. It does take resources, but you know, there's, there's nothing in the kind of, um, constitution of poor people that makes them right. destined to be poor, right? I mean, it, it is at the end of the day, a lack of resources. Um, and, you know, those that lack of resources and the disadvantage that comes from that can accumulate over time. And, you know, at, at, so that they end up in a much deeper hole than they began in, right? But that's not, that's not because of um, any kind of constitution, it's because 
you know, it's hard to dig yourself out of. It's it's like that the the story of the house that needs so much repair, and so then you you try to fix one thing, but then there's this other thing, and you know, it becomes like a, a and it, you know, when you when you leave something for too long. Um, you end up needing a whole lot more to to fix it than if you had fixed it at the beginning because each each unfixed leak in the roof turns into you know something else mold everywhere whatever I'm not yeah. a homeowner so I'm not really good at these metaphors but you get what I'm trying to say yeah. so I guess I mean this you know uh, brings us sort of the what are you I mean I know I know what the answer is is your answer is the sort of the solutions and, and to making sure people have those resources. I know you're a proponent of a guaranteed income or universal basic income. So if you want to, if you know, speak on that, sort of what your opinion on that is and sort of, because I mean, it pretty much became a, a mainstream topic the past uh, democratic election cycle. So sort of your thoughts on it, how you came to, to become a proponent of it. Wow, Max, you're so kind <laughs> to give me a little platform. <laughs> um, yeah, I I actually think of poverty very simplistically, and you know, I, I make no apology for that. Like to me, poverty is about not having enough money to meet the basic necessities of life. You know, so if the poverty threshold in the United States is twelve thousand dollars, and I know that's the official poverty measure, but let's stay with that for a moment. If if you know, not having at least $12,000 a year income renders us poor, then, you know, the policy solution for that in my mind is let's make sure everyone has $12,000 a year because then they won't be poor, right? And, and, and again, I realize it's simplistic, but, but, you know, where I think that this idea is powerful is that um, it gets it it addresses head on the problem of financial insecurity, which I think is is majorly problematic and has become much more so now than ever before. Um, and so having a having an income of say a thousand dollars a month, right, um, which is what a, a you know you know kind of the the mainstream proposal. It's it's what Yang was talking about, right? A thousand dollars a month for every American um, is kind of uh, what we were talking about. Um, that's not going to eradicate all of the other things that we talked about, right? We're, it's not going to mean that all the people who are struggling with some kind of medical illness, uh, mental illness. Um, unemployment. It's not going to. It's not going to get rid of all of those problems. It, you know, giving uh, people twelve thousand dollars a year doesn't mean that they are no longer going to live in substandard housing. It might take a lot more than that to get there. It 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 doesn't necessarily even mean that like everyone who wants to go to college will be able to do so. It certainly doesn't eradicate racism you know, intimate partner violence, substance uh, abuse, child abuse, you know, all of the other kind of problems that we have. Uh, it doesn't get rid of climate change. It doesn't get rid, you know, it doesn't get rid of any of those things, you know, just, it's not a silver bullet. But, but it does then mean that those individuals who are struggling with these other issues won't be poor. It then means that, for instance, the person who has a disability or has a, a physical illness of some sort, they will have at least enough cash to subsist on. And so then, you know, society and, and helping professionals and they themselves and their families can then work on the other, you know, areas of their lives where they need help, right? But, but at least they have a subsistence uh, income. At least they're not going to starve, um, and 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 at least they'll have some modicum of um, of of a, a foundational a base, you know, upon which they can then build other things. Um, and 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 you know, truth be told, I mean, I don't know about you, but like for the vast majority of people, I've talk to about this, I have yet to meet someone who's like, oh yeah, give me $12,000 a year and I'm not going to work. Um, I, like, that's just not, it's, it's not what most people um, would do with $12,000. I mean, people would still, uh, you know, get up and go to work, um, you know, for various other reasons. It's not, 
you know, I would hate to, to live in a world where the only reason why people go to work is so they don't starve to death, right? I mean, that's not, that's certainly not the reason why you're doing this podcast. And, yeah. <laughs> and you know, it's not the reason I work. Um, so I think, you know, so that's kind of where I come to it. And, you know, one final word about this, um, you know, with respect to um, income and all of these other issues, you know, I would hate to live in a society where the punishment for not getting married before having your children is starvation. I would hate to live in a world where, you know, regardless of the reason you didn't graduate from high school, I would hate to live in a world where the punishment for not graduating from high school is starvation. Like, you know, so, so along those lines as well. I mean, I think different people come to live their lives in different ways for various reasons and everyone has their personal story. Um, And of course, some people make bad choices. I mean, you know, sure. But, you know, do we want them to starve? Do we want them to be destitute as a, as a consequence of, of, you know, a few bad choices? I mean, I, you know, I think those are the three strands that, that, you know, get me to land in this spot of like, you know, let's get rid of poverty. I'm running out of time. So I'll just ask, yeah, I know it's crazy. Um, are there any sort of other myths of po- poverty or misconceptions about poverty that people have that you think should be addressed that don't, people don't understand enough about? So, you know, one of the things that I do in class, and so you'll remember this, is at the very, um, at, on the very first day of class, I say, you know, so what do you think are the causes and correlates of poverty, right? Um, and oftentimes, um, you know, students will will respond with a lot of um, kind of uh, both demographic and and very both demographic and then individual um, responses. So in the demographic uh, range, uh, you know, kind of bucket, um, students will say um, things like, well, there's gender inequality. So, you know, women tend to be uh, poorer than men. Uh, There's race inequality, um, uh, you know, having a disability, you know, um, can be correlated with uh, income inequality and a whole bunch of kind of demographic things like that, right? Age, certainly. Um, and then on the individual behavior side of things, um, you know, again, where we started. So um, having children um, as a single parent, um, uh, dropping out of school, certainly, you know, getting uh, involved with the criminal justice system, um, going to jail, getting arrested, those kinds of things. So the behavior um, the behavioral uh, uh, bucket, let's call it. Um, very, very rarely, at least you know, at the very beginning, um, do do students, um, you know, kind of point to some of the more macro issues, issues like you know the decline of unions, or you know, and 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 you know, relatedly, uh, the um, declining power of workers to be able to command a, a fair share of um, profits to be um, paid out in the way of wages as opposed to going to profits per se, right? So how, how, how does value added get distributed between workers and owners or, or you know, corporations or, or, or shareholders, et cetera? Um, very rarely do um, students talk about, um, you know, the the fall of manufacturing, the rise of the service sector, the deindustrialization, globalization. You know, all of the kind of macro things, which makes sense because they're more invisible. Um, but when you look at the arc of history, those macro forces seem to have much more on you know the both the level of poverty and the level of income uh, inequality in any society than the kind of individual um, uh, 
be, you know, behavioral choices that, that people make. So I guess that's, that's kind of the, the, in some respect, uh, it's not so much a debunking of a myth, but it's a, it's trying to uh, pull more weight toward um, other forces uh, that don't necessarily get as much attention. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, there's that, that itself is another hour interview going into, into those issues. But thank you. Yeah, I think that's a good way to end on some of those bigger issues that we have to think about and address. So thank you for joining us, Ari. Max, um, thank you so much for inviting me. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Learned a couple things. Remember, follow on Twitter, like on Facebook, another progressive podcast. Tweet at me if there's any arguments made by conservative commentators you want me to do an episode about, any clips you want me to respond to specifically, anything at all. Subscribe to the show. Listen again. See you next week. Bye. Bye.